This is Entheogen, three human beings discussing generating the divine within while still being human beings. In this episode, recorded on June 22nd, 2015, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Carl Ruck, professor in the Classical Studies Department at Boston University. Professor Ruck is credited with coining the term entheogen to describe neurotropic substances. We'll join that discussion now. Professor, we, we were at uh, the Burning Man event last year, and uh, Joe, Joe and Brad had just gone to a, a workshop that was about uh, navigating altered states. And uh, when they came back, they were really excited about uh, the things they'd heard. And uh, we got into a very long conversation in which I mentioned uh, your, your class again, which has stuck with me probably more than anything else has at BU. <laughs> And, Amazing. <laughs> aside, aside from hockey, right? Probably. <laughs> yeah. you, uh, I'm about to, in two weeks, I'm going to London for a conference called Breaking Conventions. Do you know about that conference? That, that name sounds really familiar, but I don't, no, 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 I don't know anything about it. Every, every two years. And um, it's going to be at the Naval Academy in Greenwich. Oh, and wow. I'm going to have a chance to meet up with a friend uh, who lives in London, Alan Piper, and his wife. And so I'll be talking about the latest project, which is the new museum complex for the ancient sanctuary of Eleusis, which is in modern Greek, Ellipsina. We're going to make it the world center for the renegotiating of our contract with covenant with Mother Earth. There are two, there are two ways we can handle the disaster that's facing us, and one is to decide that the Earth will become uninhabitable and we'll have to go someplace else for a few elite or we find some way to live within the bounds of, of our natural environment and so it's it's a big project it's going to take probably longer than I will live but um, we're planning to all the all the other ancient sanctuaries in, in Greece have a foot in the future at Delphi there's a poetry uh, performance makers of Skilianos, who was a, a, a poet. And of course, Olympia, Olympia, uh, it's come into the modern world with the Olympic Games, which started at the beginning of the last century. But Elipsina is a place that's been desecrated, and most people don't, don't even know about it. And so we're going to it's 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 terribly polluted. We're turning that around, and we intend to make it a place where we can study how to live with a knowledge of our continuity with our natural environment. That's absolutely fascinating, and that plays right into the uh, quote that I think Kevin is most in love with at the moment. Do you want to um, read that quote, Kevin? And maybe we should first um, uh, introduce uh, Professor Ruck, and thank you for joining us uh, on this episode of and theogen, as we like to pronounce it. But since you coined the term, could you tell us how to pronounce it? And theogen is fine, yes. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, Professor, just to jump back a few seconds, when uh, uh, the three of us uh, have, have been friends for a long time, and uh, this is, these topics have always been fascinating to us. It's something we spend a lot of time talking and reading about. And so when these guys came back from the, the, the workshop they'd been to, they said, well, you know, we should, we should totally do something about this, like start, start a, a, a podcast. And at first it was a joke, and then it started to get more serious. And uh, when we were thinking of the name for it, all I could remember was from your class was the, was the term entheogen. I think like that's a fantastic name for this uh, podcast. And now, now I have to say it feels a little bit ridiculous saying it right back to you. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the check so, is in the mail on, on the royalties. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I did make up the term, but now other people are claiming that they made it up, but it is my term. <laughs> well, it's a, and, and fantastic. When I write, I, I try not to use it too much because I'm, I'm afraid that I'm you know, too to my own horn. And so, but it is my word, yes. <laughs> And it, it, it's, it, it shows up in all the uh, European languages. It translates easily into all of them. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very nice uh, feature of it. It's, it's got a good, good, uh, good translation. It's, uh, you can, I, I've looked at it even in, in you know, on, yeah. for example, living in Spain, it's like in the Spanish uh, Wikipedia page comes up automatically. Yeah. And, Although I, I wrote a paper with a group of scholars, and one of them is, was a mycologist, a scientist, an eminent uh, Mexican mycologist, and um, he felt that we shouldn't call it an entheogen. It was on some um, rock paintings, in, which seemed to have to do with entheogens and mushrooms. But he didn't like the term entheogen because, as a scientist, it involves theology. And so we decided to go along with him and called it neurotropic. You don't, you don't interpret what's happened, you just call what's happened by a scientific term. But as a matter of fact, it is a spiritual event. The same thing happened with uh, chemistry, which is re really alchemy. Alchemy plus theology. In order to remove theology from the science, it became chemistry. And in, in terms of uh, astrology, um, they couldn't... I mean, all, the, all the sciences are logoses, but they already had the logos in astrology, and so to remove um, the theological dimension, it became astronomy. This is, uh, I feel like we, we could talk to you for hours here about there. There's so yeah. many things that come to mind. And uh, one of the things we had on, uh, on the list was um, you, uh, one of the things that uh, comes up in reading about you is you talking about the, the role of entheogens in uh, modern religion. And it just, it makes me keep thinking it's, you know, if if uh, the entheogenic experience is is so tied to nature, how did modern religion get so uh, far from nature, uh, and then to the to the point where we separate um, nature and and science? Basically, I mean nature and science, the spiritual uh, experience in nature from science, uh, and and in the entheogen, there it's it's obvious that they have such a, a connection. It's it's a prized possession of the elite. And there are many reasons why it's prized. One is that if you know about it, there's no need to go through the bureaucracy of, um, that, that collects money for make, making contact with this experience. But the other is deeper, and that is that it's a very dangerous, profound experience, and you need guidance. And um, how do you provide guidance in spiritual matters in, in a world which is polyethnic, um, which can espouse no religion. It's very, very hard to interpret spiritual experience without a religious framework. And yet this goes beyond any spiritual framework. And if you were to look for a guide, uh, how can you find a guide who's not going to indoctrinate you into one religious tradition or another? So I, I did work with a person who trained to be a Catholic priest but decided um, that he wouldn't become ordained instead he uh, established his own church called an experimental church and we were we put a proposal in for um, a huge grant to um, 
investigate and instigate discussion uh, about about the origins of religious cognition before it becomes codified in any particular dogma. And I mean, that's what we really need. But entheogens are very, very dangerous because people become lost, they get become addicted. And in addition to that, in the wrong hands, you end up under the guidance of a false guru into a particular religious dogma. And there should be no particular religious dogma. But how do you guide someone to an experience without uh, running the danger of establishing a religion? That is a that is a, fa- a fascinating question. I just I just had uh, just just a few weeks ago my first uh, ayahuasca experience, and uh, I was fascinated by. But can, can can you have that experience without espousing the deities of, of the jungle? I mean, if you take it without the um, the theological uh, materializations that it's 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 uh, tied to in your indoctrination, you're just taking a drug. Um, people talk about the uh, keto zombies. They think they've had the experience, but they really haven't. They just and and yet we don't want to become um, adherents to uh, a new religion. So how do you do it? We don't know. Yeah, this is this is a very very complicated question. It, it seems uh, well. Also, it seems like where do you or how do you um, you know how do you adapt? How do you culturally adapt that type of an experience, mm-hmm. right? And I thought, uh, you know, when I had this ayahuasca experience, I thought it was uh, well, well, well prepared. I mean, like there are a million ideas for how you could improve it, but I thought it was at least at least mildly well prepared, and uh, and and that the the person who was doing it was not uh, was not trying to be a, a guru or or trying mm-hmm. to indoctrinate anybody to any particular thing. I thought he was very good in maintaining those uh, those principles, but I think that the cultural adaptation part is like a very it's a very curious uh, question. Coincidentally, the 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 lecture that Kevin referred to that Joe and I saw um, at Burning Man last year um, it's a it's a mo- it's a doctor um, you know she's relatively young but she's got a great depth of experience both with ayahuasca and um, as a therapist and a big part of what she helps people with is so the name of the title was navigating altered states and the ayahuasca experience is for people to connect with themselves sometimes they need more you know iconography or symbols mm-hmm. that are appropriate to them so instead of teaching them to look for a jaguar or look for a serpent or to be prepared for those things you know to recognize that we didn't you know some of the people in the western world who are drinking ayahuasca you, you know, didn't grow up in the same place. So we didn't grow yeah. up in the jungle. We don't have those experiences um, that historically for thousands of years, people have been doing this. So like the modern context, there are the Icaros, there are the songs, there's this sort of setting. But I really am excited about, so her name's Mariana Dinkova is the person mm-hmm. who we saw. And I'm excited that there are people like her who are asking that exact question and not just asking it, but doing their best to to kind of bridge that gap and say, yeah. you know, how yeah. how do we respect the history, but then make it appropriate for a contemporary setting? Well, actually, our own European uh, culture has a rich uh, panoply of paradigms to help us with the experience, but we're told that it has nothing to do with this kind of drug-induced visionary experience, and so people don't understand that the ancient Greek myths 
are um, um, a fantastic way of um, mapping out a pathway for self-discovering. And I, I love that uh, Hoffman quote uh, that uh, Kevin uh, brought to our attention recently. Do you have Do you have that handy just to sort of contextualize that that part of the discussion? I think it just sums up that that part that point so uh, beautifully. Yeah, if, I mean, if you guys will bear with me, it is a little bit. It's it's a paragraph long, so I will. Uh, I'll I'll do my best here. <laughs> Uh, it says, alienation from nature and the loss of the experience of being part of the living creation is the greatest tragedy of our materialistic era. It is the causative reason for ecological devastation and climate change. Therefore, I attribute absolute highest importance to consciousness change. I regard psychedelics as catalyzers for this. There are tools which are guiding our perception toward the other deeper areas of our human existence so that we again become aware of our spiritual essence. Psychedelic experiences in a safe setting can help our consciousness open up to the sensation of connection and being one with nature. LSD and related substances are not drugs in the usual sense, but are part of the sacred substances, which have been used for thousands of years in ritual settings. The classic psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline are characterized by the fact that they are neither toxic nor addictive. It is my great concern to separate psychedelics from the ongoing debates about drugs, and to highlight the potential inherent to these substances uh, for self-awareness as an adjunct in therapy and for fundamental research into the human mind. It is my wish that uh, a modern eleusis will emerge in which seeking humans can learn to have transcendent experiences with sacred substances in a safe setting. I am convinced that these soul-opening, mind-revealing substances will find their appropriate place in our society and our culture. This, when, 30 years after I worked with him on, on the uh, mystery and Eleusis, I, I wrote another book to a more popular presentation and incorporating other work that I've done over the decades. And he was quite old at that time, but I asked him if he would write something, even if it was only a sentence. And so he did. And uh, can't, I mean, I could quote the, the sentence, but it essentially says, only a new elusis can save uh, mankind humankind from the disaster facing us wow and he cert he certainly wasn't talking about um, re oh, organizing um, an ancient pagan religion he's talking about exactly what this uh, we call it the gaia project is the renegotiating of our covenant with planet earth wow wow that's yeah. <laughs> And the, and, and the myth of Eleusis is our pathway for understanding what this involves. Obviously, uh, the new museum complex is not going to be a place where people take drugs because it's illegal. And even if it were legal, it's too dangerous. As I said, you have to have guidance and so forth. But we are going to find ways to go to the origins of religious cognition and to make people aware of the fact that they belong in a wider uh, context, which is the totality of our planet and probably the other dimensions that uh, lie beyond our existence on this, on this planet. Uh, how, how do you see, uh, perhaps in the future, what, 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 are, what is the role for, for the entheogen or any, any other... Uh, I mean, in a, in a ritualistic setting, I mean, is there is there any way to possibly incorporate that uh, into society, or or is something like I don't know, Groff's like uh, holotropic breathing more uh, of a, a viable solution? I really don't know um, because anything you say 
uh, means you might be setting yourself up as a religious guru. <laughs> true. I can't do that. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I think it, it remains a private experience. And um, most people are too weak to do it. Well, well said. So for the Gaia project, is this a public uh, project? Is there a place that our listeners can look to on the internet to find more information about this? Yes, the, the modern name of the town, but I think either way, way you do it, you'd get it. But um, it's Elefsina, E-L-E-F-S-I-N-A, and Gaia Project, uh, Greece, and you'll find what we're doing. Our, our first step, I mean, it's going to require millions of dollars. And as you know, Greece is in bad economic condition right now. There are many wealthy people who could contribute. But our first step is to make um, Elefsina, the village, the each year Europe uh, chooses a cultural uh, capital and cultural heritage uh, capital and our first step now is to in the year uh, 2021 uh, it rotates and it's Greece's turn to have that honor and our uh, initiative is to make the village the cultural heritage capital in that year in the meantime, we're drawing up plans for the museum complex. It, it's um, it, it's a vast project, but it's going to involve all kinds of um, uh, art workshops and um, investigation of uh, alternate uh, sources of e energy and um, alternative healing procedures and and meditation and that sort of thing. In addition to being the museum for the for the um, ancient site, and uh, professor, is there is there some place uh, online perhaps that if someone listening felt uh, like donating to that project in in any way uh, that they they could visit to do that? Um, yeah, I don't I don't know how you you uh, contribute to it, but we're certainly looking for contributions. But um, you'll find the website under um, Gaia. Project Elefsina Greece, and um, the Friends of Elefsina is the organization, and so you'll find it. You'll find also some video material, um, some talks that I've given, and things like that. Uh, well, yeah, sorry, sorry, heard a little, hear yeah, I heard heard a little music there, but we can uh, we can move That's move my, forward. Those are my talks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought this conversation was launching me into an entheogenic experience. <laughs> I, uh, so so the, I I think Joe maybe that's something that you could post in the in the show notes is just uh, where to find that information uh, for for those those who are interested in. Uh, in I, I I can email uh, Kevin the um, the website. Great, that that'd be great. Professor Rock, are you are you still teaching uh, the the topics in myth class? Yes, I am. Oh, fantastic! It's a, it was a class that uh, somehow was stored in my brain, yeah. <laughs> though though it, it was uh, I didn't completely comprehend it at the time. I was young, and uh, for some reason it was stored, and it just uh, it kept giving years and years after, yeah. and, uh, and led to the current moment. Obviously, I, I wrote a short, popular book to use as a, 
a textbook for the course, and it's, it's called uh, Mushrooms, Myth, and Human Consciousness. Oh, wow. We'll have to, have to check that out. No, it's, that? it's entheogens. Entheogens, myth, and human consciousness. <laughs> ah, there you oh, go. Oh, this is the one that came out two years ago? Yeah. Well, I think more than that now. We'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, but that, that sounds like a great uh, sort of introduction and overview uh, to your work. But um, this is a fascinating project that, uh, that, that you're working on currently. Um, but just to kind of circle back to the, the broader topic of uh, entheogens and their influence on you know, humankind, um, to bring it to a more basic level, is there a way that you can that you can sort of I wouldn't say recommend, but that you see people using entheogens in a sort of constructive way to gain that insight that you know that we that we all feel I think people need to reconnect with um, with the I guess the Gaia consciousness of the planet. Is there is there yeah. a special way that you know that people can use um, entheogens to to achieve that kind of insight, or you know does anything go? Well, since for the most part it's illegal in this country, it's difficult, you know, to do something that's illegal. But most of the people who are doing this tend to be elite and have money enough to go to a foreign country. And so, there, uh, I mean, people are going to um, um, shamans in other countries and being initiated. And also there are people being initiated in... Native American Indian culture in this country, but um, in a hypothetical um, world where, where or a country where this you know where, where these entheogens were legal, um, it, you know, is there are there certain ones, certain substances that uh, seem to be more effective um, at, at you know uh, elucidating this kind of experience or. Is there um, a certain context that seems to be more appropriate? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I think it should be a visionary substance, not something that's going to just tranquilize you. And so LSD is a very good candidate, although it is synthetic. Hmm. And um, the Amanita muscaria is a difficult drug to take. And most people find um, the psilocybe mushrooms much easier. And then it depends. Cannabis has become very strong. It's hard to tell. Hmm. But, you know, the, the young people are doing this, but they have learned to keep it a secret. Yeah, I, I, that, that's actually quite surprising. It's uh, so, so, something that I've been dis- discovering over the last few years is just uh, how much interest there is uh, in these topics and it's just completely under the surface. Yeah, under the surface, yeah. And occasionally it does surface. I mean, there were, um, last year there was an, someone who died at a rave, and somehow it didn't cause a great commotion, <laughs> although it should have. But um, obviously um, it was because of a drug overdose. Well, I I look at that as also a side effect of the, you know, uh, keeping these things illegal. Uh, You don't know really what drug or or what dosage you're getting most of the time. So contaminated, I know. Yeah, that that that, that's uh, I guess uh, the 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 great tragedy too is that you do have uh, this interest 
as we said, that's under the surface, but because the the, the structure that's required to to make the experience uh, pr- productive and and safe is, is just not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just in, in that kind of you know ne- negative uh, feedback loop, I guess. And on that topic of making it more safe, um, do you see? You mentioned earlier that other uh, that many people can't sort of handle it, and it's it's something that tends to be reserved for the elite, um, you know, and and also just I guess the self selected group that that can do it and manage it and sort of keep it under wraps. But um, do you see these substances as having a broader appeal and a broader I guess audience, or is it? Do you envision um, the benefits we have to gain from them as being more that the elite, or so to speak, will have the experiences and sort of bring back that, that knowledge and understanding and, you know, um, dis- disseminate it among the common folk. Yeah. I, I hate to think of the concept of the elite, but, um, in, in most of the religious traditions that I've investigated, you get beyond the, um, the barrier for the public and you find that, Oh yes, but don't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's it's one of the things that stood out to me uh, when reading Albert Hoffman's book um, LSD My Problem Child was that that he uh, alluded to that at one point and I didn't know if he specifically meant that he, he mentioned that LSD is not for uh, the general public it's not for the, the masses and I didn't know if he was specifically saying because of that lack of structure or if it's just that Really, um, I don't know. There, there needed to be some sort of a screening or, or selection process in, involved because of the nature of the substance itself. Yeah, you enter a world where you need to have guidance, and without guidance, it can be overwhelming. But as I said, how can you provide guidance without um, becoming a, a prophet of a religion? But I think the guidance that we could safely take is the immersion in our own European cultural heritage of classical mythology. But it's very hard because even though I've done a considerable amount of writing and so forth, and there are people who um, agree with what I'm doing, the mainstream uh, of classical scholarship claims that um, no such thing happened. I, I have a colleague who was influenced, a younger person who was influenced by my writing. He wrote The Chemical Muse, um, and it was his dissertation. When he defended his uh, thesis, um, they made him wait a long time, and then um, they told him, well, we will accept it only if you excise Chapter 3. Chapter three. He uh, he's a, has a, in addition to a PhD in classics. He's a microbiologist and um, an MA. And um, chapter three was recreational drug use in antiquity. And he said, "Why?" And they said, "Because they wouldn't have done that sort of thing." <laughs> wow. And so he got the book published by a reputable uh, press. And they told him, "You may have gotten it." published, but we'll see to it that you'll never get a job. Now, he does have jobs, but not great jobs. At present, in addition to being a university professor, he's paid so little that he has just taken up a job, a second job, as a janitor 
uh, on the weekends, essentially cleaning his own office. Wow. wow. Are you talking about Dr. David Hillman? Yes. That's a that's an incredible stor story. Because the book's not that old, right? It's only... No, I know. So he, he, consciously, went, he consciously sacrificed his career and his sort of uh, potential academic legacy because he... he, yeah. he he wanted to share what was in the book and yeah. its original content. Wow. <laughs> and then he further got into trouble. He was teaching at a Catholic um, high school, um, private school for elite young ladies. And I've seen him teach. He's a great teacher. But he, while he was there, he wrote a book on ritual sex abuse in the early church. And it's true. They thought it was a good thing. I mean, it was part of their way they saved souls and when that hit the press he got fired wow <laughs> but but everyone's at home watching true detective it's fun. yeah <laughs> it's unbelievable well even I, if you can get past all that though like even if you can get past the you know the blatant refusal um to to accept these historical facts uh yeah. in modern times you still have the the point you made earlier which is that uh, it's very hard to sort of gather, um, you know, the, the metaphors and, and, and learnings from those ancient uh, traditions and, and yeah. you know, recontextualize it in modern times. So even if you can learn from it in some way, it's really difficult. Well, one of the things that, that I uh, came upon is that um, most uh, people agree that the writings of St. Paul are authentic for the most part. And because there are a lot of synonymous writings as well. But in the first Corinthians, everyone knows, and it is largely by Paul. And in it, he reprimands the Christian community he established at uh, Lucis. First of all, he, he establishes what the Christian mystery is in Corinth. Uh, and he, the people he's talking to were Greek. They were about 40 miles from the sanctuary of Eleusina. Most of them would have been initiated uh, at Eleusina. And you can't use the word mystery without them thinking in terms of what mysteries were. Um, um, but he is preaching the new mystery of Christianity. And in it, he claims that they're doing the Eucharist incorrectly because quite a few of them have become sick and uh, some of them have even died. Now, how do you die from having a little bit of bread and, and holy wine. <laughs> and, and, and I've pointed it out to, to theologians, and um, for the most part, they, um, not for the most part, they, oh, it's too dangerous. They don't, they don't, um, they ignore it as if I hadn't even mentioned it. It was a faux pas. Is it ergotism? Is that? Do you die from, from uh, bread and wine. Is it the tainted, the tainted bread? No, it was that they were uh, obviously had, uh, the drug use had gotten out of control. We don't know what drug they were taking, but it had to have been a psychoactive Eucharist. You, you, hmm. you don't die from symbolic bread and wine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hmm. Anyhow, that's, that's a fascinating. <laughs> Processing that one. Same. <laughs> like, same. I'm just mulling on that. That's great. That's so so Professor Rock, how has it been for you throughout your your career? Like how, how have you managed to 
uh, avoid, uh, I guess, the, the, the fate of your younger colleague and, and how have you managed to continue to do your work and, and be protected in a sense? Times have changed. I had enemies, um, but they couldn't get rid of me because I already had tenure. And now my colleagues like me. and They can't quite understand what the problem was. Um, <laughs> it's a matter of outliving my enemies. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a solid tactic. Wow. Well, we touched on a number of really interesting topics. Uh, I, I would love to... Uh, to maybe uh, explore this a bit more in, in the future, if if you're if you're willing, Professor sure. Rock. Of course. Yeah, and Professor Rock, I can't uh, say thank you enough. Uh, the the experience, uh, like I said before, your your class kind of uh, I don't know what happened. It created a a space somewhere in my brain, and then it was uh, it was like slowly slow slow dose over a long period of time and uh it's just amazing to come back to all these things and, and just see the, the the full circle and it's been uh just such a, a beautiful learning process all the way all the way through and uh and, in, and for example something like this podcast it's uh it's fantastic to share uh this experience with with uh, two my two really good friends who are here with us and uh and and to share our common experiences and just try to give something back in a, in a sense of, uh, you know, I, I think when we were doing this, we always wished we could have listened to something at some point <laughs> that, uh, I could have served maybe as a guide or a support or something. Well, great. We can do this again. Well, thank you so, so much. That was Entheogen. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. And you can find out more at entheogenshow.com. And you can also find out a lot more on Facebook. Search for Entheogen Show.